What is the greatest opportunity you've ever been given in your life? For some of you, that might be an easy question to answer. For others of us, we might have to think about it for a while. Opportunities are chances to move up. There are chances to leave whatever station in life we're in at the moment and perhaps improve to a new station in life. Some opportunities are big. Some opportunities are small. A lot of opportunities we have, we don't even think of as opportunities because they're so common to us all. The opportunity that all of us had to get an education when we were children. We probably, maybe none of you thought of that as an opportunity in your life, but it is, especially compared to other human beings who have lived in the past and people even living today who did not have that opportunity. Opportunities are not equally distributed in any way. Some people get big opportunities in life. Some people get a series of smaller opportunities. But I would contend that everyone gets some kind of opportunity. Life offers everyone some kind of opportunity. If you've ever moved from being uneducated to educated, from unemployed to employed, from a job that doesn't pay as well to a job that pays better, from single to married, all of these represent an opportunity that was given to you that moved you to a new place in life. And again, not everyone gets a big break. And that's, I think, how we tend to think of opportunities. We think of the big breaks in life as opportunities. And not everyone gets those. But every person gets some kind of opportunity in life. And the truth is that an opportunity that's properly stewarded, properly handled, properly managed, can change a person's life immensely. If someone is ready for the opportunity when it's presented to them, and they do well with the opportunity when they get it, it can change somebody's life in an incredible way. In our passage of Scripture this morning, Jesus is going to tell a parable. And it's a parable all about opportunity. And what this parable is going to indicate to us, and what we are going to learn from this parable is that Jesus offers opportunity. He offers everyone the opportunity to be part of his kingdom. For three years, Christ has lived on this earth. And the gospel, according to Luke, chronicles the 33 years of his life, from his birth and infancy all the way through his adulthood and the teaching that he has been giving to the nation of Israel. And during the three years of his earthly ministry, Jesus has been calling people to repent because the kingdom of God is near. That invitation to repent because the kingdom of God is near is an invitation to his kingdom. It's an invitation to sign on to be part of his kingdom so that when it comes, you'll be part of it. You'll receive the benefits of it. It's an opportunity that Christ was offering in his message that we call the gospel the good news. But not everyone received that opportunity or even saw it to be an opportunity. Some people saw it as a threat to be opposed. Some people saw it as a declaration that they needed to question, that they weren't so sure about, that they weren't necessarily willing to accept as true. 
And because not everyone saw the invitation of Christ, the gospel of Christ, as an opportunity, that means some people missed out on it. And Jesus is going to talk about all of this contained and sort of condensed down into this parable. And he's going to warn people about missing the opportunity that he offers in his kingdom. Let's jump into the parable in Luke chapter 20, verse 9, where we read these words. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it out to some farmers, and went away for a long time. Now, unlike some of Jesus's parables, this one is not, we're not given really any interpretation about it at all. But yet the comparison that Christ uses, the analogy that Christ draws out in an extended way in this parable, is simple enough to interpret. We can look at what is said and figure out what Christ is trying to convey in the parable. Jesus talks about a man who planted a vineyard. And in the Old Testament, there are a couple of points where the prophets refer to Israel as a vineyard. And so the vineyard metaphor of God's relationship with the people of Israel would have been very familiar, or at least somewhat familiar, to the people that Jesus was giving this story to. And so Jesus says, a man planted a vineyard, and people were already thinking, okay, God represents, or the man in the story represents God, and the vineyard represents us in some way. And so the story goes on and says this, he rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. Now, the farmers in this story refer primarily to the religious leaders of Israel. And Jesus has been in conflict with them for a long time. But his conflict with them has come to a heightened point here in this point in his ministry. He's come to Jerusalem, and you may remember from the last message that Jesus entered the temple and he began throwing out the people who were selling doves and exchanging money and so on. And he began teaching authoritatively and the people who were part of the religious establishment came to him questioning his authority. And so this parable is primarily directed at them. They are, in this story, the farmers who rented out the vineyard. They were supposed to be productively leading the people of God in a way that was spiritually productive for God. And so the story continues. In verse 10, it says, At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. And this represents the prophets that had come along over the years. You know from the Old Testament that God's people, although God had given them great blessings, he performed miracles for them and put them in the land of promise and gave them promises that said, if you live this way and follow my word and love me with all your heart, you will prosper. But the people of God rejected, by and large, the word of God. They rejected the message of God and obedience to God's word, and so God sent prophets to them. There were priests all along. They were teaching God's word. But the people weren't getting the point. They were serving idols. And so God would send prophets along to call the people back to national obedience. And how were these prophets treated? Well, Jesus goes on in verse 10 to say this. At the harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyards. But the servants, or the tenants, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. 
the prophets that God sent to his people Israel were not well treated by Israel. And Israel had a long um, and bad track record of not only rejecting the word of God that was brought to them by the prophets, but abusing the prophets. In some cases, um, insulting them, in some cases, assaulting them physically, in some cases, putting them in prison, in some cases, putting them to death. And so Jesus is drawing out this analogy and he's saying God has created this place that could be a place of abundance and my teachers, the leaders that he appointed are supposed to be drawing spiritual fruit from the people, but it's not working. And so the master, God the Father, sends prophets to call them to repentance so that he can have some of the fruit and they are not well treated. And verse 10 says the first of these servants, the first of these prophets was beaten and sent away empty-handed. Verse 11 says, he sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent, he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. And so we're to see actually a progression of bad treatment, a digression, you might say, of bad treatment of the prophets. That the way they get treated gets worse and worse over time. The last one is actually wounded, which means that he, he was um, actually like had a wound in his body that was bleeding when he left, all right? And so that's worse than the guy that was beaten, as bad as that was. And so Jesus then returns to the story and says in verse 15, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Of course, the son in this story corresponds to Jesus. He is called the Son of God, not to say that he was God's offspring because Christ is one of the persons of God, has existed for all eternity, just as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit has. But the sonship of Christ represents the relationship that he has to the one we call God the Father. That although they are equal in nature, they are subordinate to each other in their relationship and they have a relationship of love with one another. And in this analogy, in this story, Jesus is saying, my coming to you is coming as God's most loved son. And it's a stress on the opportunity that they have, having heard the gospel message, to receive the son, and in so doing, to be part of the kingdom opportunity that Jesus is offering. And so that's what's going on in this passage. Jesus is offering Israel the opportunity to be part of his kingdom. Now, this began earlier, a couple of um, sections ago, as we looked at, at sun, a few Sundays ago, at the triumphal entry of Jesus. The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was Jesus' self-presentation as Israel's king. The way Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and the way that his followers lauded him as he entered Jerusalem were all designed to say, here comes the Messiah, here comes the promised king. And we can see that even in the words that they said. In Luke chapter 19, verses 35 through 38, it says, they brought it to Jesus, that is the colt that he rode on, and they threw their donkeys on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. This was all drawn from Old Testament imagery of kings. And he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And what did they say? They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
When Jesus entered Jerusalem in this way, he was presenting himself as the king, the one that the people were supposed to be waiting for and supposedly waiting for, the one who would restore peace to Israel. And the events that follow that entry, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, are all about his kingship, whether or not it will be accepted or rejected. Jesus began imposing his kingdom authority as we saw last Sunday, when he entered the temple and began to work and teach authoritatively there, but he immediately encountered resistance from the teachers. And now this parable is given as a warning to them. And it's given as a warning to them in the sense that Jesus is saying, I'm not the first of God's messengers that you have rejected. The way that these other servants were beaten and thrown out Like the prophets who were rejected, Jesus is saying, I stand in that same tradition. God the Father has been sending you messengers, calling you to repent, giving you an opportunity to know him and to follow him and to be productive spiritually for him. But you've rejected them, rejected them, rejected them. And this is what Israel did. Israel rejected God's messengers and then ultimately rejected his son. And that's what Jesus is alluding to here. God the Father has sent his son into the world. And he came to the people of Israel. He came as a Jewish man when he entered the human race. And he came offering the kingdom that had been prophesied. But how was he received? The same way that the prophets were received, actually worse. The passage says, in verse 13, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Now you understand that, um, I hope you understand, that the, um, the vineyard that is described here, this was not an uncommon thing that went on in Israel. There were some landowners who owned so much land that they couldn't actually farm it all themselves, and so they would rent it out to other people. And those people who rented the land got some of the benefits of the work that they did, of course, but they also had to share it with the owner. These tenant farmers who are described in this passage apparently know the owner, and they know that he has one son. And this son, that's what Jesus says when he calls him the beloved son. He's He's talking about the fact that it's his one and only son, the one that he cares deeply about, the one that he hopes to pass on everything that he owns to. That's why they call him the heir. And these guys get it in their mind, look, if we get rid of the heir, then when the owner dies, the ownership picture will be very muddled here. And we can keep all of the profits for ourselves. Yeah, we might not legally become the owners, but who's going to oppose us? I mean, after all, we've already beat up three guys, and so we know we can defend the vineyard. And so if we get rid of the heir, then the legal thing is murky and no one's going to challenge us. We can keep all the profits for ourselves. And the point that Jesus is saying here is this this conflict, this strife that he has with the people of Israel somewhat, but mostly with the leadership, the religious leadership in Jerusalem is over the control of access to God and the meaning of the, um, the Israel as a religious entity. The religious leaders are already looking to kill Jesus. We've already been told that. And Jesus is saying, you're like these tenant farmers. You're trying to take ownership of the vineyard that belongs to God. And that's why you oppose me. And so what we're to see described here is that Christ has come to Jerusalem. He's presented himself as king. And that kingdom offers the opportunity for people to be part of the kingdom 
But Israel did not receive the kingdom. They actually rejected the uh, messengers of God. Instead of God's kingdom, then, Israel received God's judgment. That's the, the way the parable continues. Look with me again in verse 15. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This is how they treated the son. And of course, it's a foreshadowing of what will happen to Jesus later on that week when he is crucified. But verse 16 goes on, or at the end of verse 15, it goes on and says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? This is the question. How will God treat those who mistreat and kill his son? That's the question that Jesus is raising by telling this story. And then he provides the answer rhetorically. It's a rhetorical question, and Jesus gives the rhetorical answer when he says, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, this is starting to hit home for the people. They're starting to see the point. They understand that they're the vineyard or they're the leadership of the vineyard and that God is upset with them for killing the prophets and for rejecting the son. And so that's why they say at the end of that verse, at the end of verse 16, when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. See, they're really worried about the implications of Jesus' story. But what Jesus is trying to say is, I've been here, I've been presenting the kingdom of God. I've been calling people to worship God through me, to know God through me. I've been calling people to identify with me and become my followers so that the kingdom can come and they can enjoy the benefits and fruits of it. But instead of receiving God's kingdom, God, the people of God rejected Jesus, his son, just as they rejected all the other messengers. And therefore, Jesus is saying, Israel's in trouble. They're going to fall under the judgment of God. That's the point of this parable. It's to pronounce God's judgment on the people. But there's something embedded in this parable that is important for us to understand. As we see at the end of verse, or at the beginning of verse 16, Jesus says the owner of the vineyard, God, will come and kill those tenants. This is a reflection of his judgment. But then it says, and give the vineyard to others. Now that's telling. And it's important because Jesus is telling Israel, not only have you been rejected from receiving the kingdom of God, but God hasn't given up on the kingdom. God is simply going to move the offer of the kingdom to other people. Now, some of the people who receive Jesus and are part of his kingdom by faith, of course, were Jewish. But the vast majority of Jewish people rejected Jesus, and certainly the vast majority of the religious people did. And so when Jesus says that that God is going to give the vineyard to others... He is foreshadowing the turn of the offer of the kingdom from the people of God, from Judaism to us, Gentiles. And so, although Israel was offered the opportunity to be part of his kingdom, they rejected it. And therefore now, God offers everyone on earth the opportunity to be part of his kingdom. That's what he's saying at the end of verse 16, when he says, He will give the vineyard to others. Now, people didn't like the message, as I indicated, and they said, God forbid, to indicate their displeasure with what Jesus had to say. And so Jesus turns from their um, almost rejection of his message and their displeasure about his message, and he returns to a psalm that has already been quoted, Psalm 118. When Jesus entered Jerusalem and the people said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they were quoting from Psalm 118. And Jesus is going to quote another part of Psalm 118 to talk about their rejection and the meaning of it. He does that beginning in verse 17, where it says, 
Jesus looked directly at them and asked, What then is the meaning of, this, of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it's a good question because if you read the psalm, the stone just kind of shows up out of nowhere. It's, it's just kind of introduced into the psalm in a way that doesn't seem to, to fit as well as other things that are said. And so Jesus is saying, have you ever thought about this song that we sing and the part of it that you quoted to me when I came um, on my triumphal entry? Did you ever think about this part of the song and what exactly it might mean? And what does it mean? What is the stone that the builders rejected? Here's the point. It's to visualize people who are building a structure, workmen, and they're building it out of stone and they're looking at the various stones that they have to use and they decide for whatever reason that one of them is not good enough. Maybe it's misshapen according to what their expectations are or whatever. And so they reject it. They cast it out. And somebody else comes along and says, this stone will be perfect to be the part that two walls rest upon, the, the, in a sense, the, a foundation, one that bears a whole lot of weight of the building. It becomes the cornerstone. Jesus is saying, you've rejected me as your king. You don't want me to be the foundation of this kingdom, even though it belongs to me. But what you need to understand is that God has not given up on the kingdom. God is going to take this stone that you've rejected, and he's going to build his kingdom on it just as he promised he would. You're just not going to be part of it. That's the message that's being offered and being taught by Christ here. And what this means, of course, is the church. That's the point that Jesus is alluding to here. God's kingdom is now being offered through the church, not through Israel. The others that Jesus referred to here in, chapter, in verse 16 are Jews and Gentiles alike who received Jesus as king. Though Jesus was rejected as king, he is now the cornerstone of the church. And the kingdom will come that way. Notice a couple of passages of Scripture where this very passage from Psalm 118 that Jesus quotes is also quoted to describe this move from Israel to the church. Here's one of them. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, the Scripture says, Consequently, you are no longer, that is, you Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens. Fellow citizens of what? God's kingdom, with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. This is an allusion to Psalm 118 and to the words of Christ here. And Paul says, in him, the whole building is being joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Here's another passage of Scripture that refers to this same passage, but, but applies it to the church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, Peter says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, there it is, the stone the builders rejected, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, and offering, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now you who believe, to you who believe, that stone is precious, Peter says. But to those who do not believe, and here he quotes Psalm 118 and the words of Christ, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. That is because they rejected the gospel. 
Why did they stumble over Jesus like somebody might stumble over a stone in the dark? Because they didn't receive his message. The light of his message would have shown them what a precious stone Jesus is, but instead they stumbled over him like something that you, you know, you wouldn't kick a stone, but you know how it is. When you stumble over something in the dark, it makes you mad. That's what, that's what's going on in the passage. And Peter continues in verse 8 and says, And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All of this teaching about the church and what God was going to do of it, do with it is embedded here in this parable of Jesus. This parable of Jesus is warning the people of Israel, you have rejected me as king. God is going to reject you as the nation and he's going to build his kingdom out of others. And I'm going to be the cornerstone of that kingdom as I should be. That's what's going on in this passage. Now, we should understand, too, that Israel as a nation, then, is under God's judgment now, but not forever. Jesus is going to tell us that after they crucified Jesus, they are going to fall under the judgment of God. But other passages of Scripture are going to tell us this is not going to last forever. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. So here's that same stone, okay, that same thing that becomes, that's so strong it can bear the, um, the weight of two walls coming upon it. It becomes the cornerstone, the foundation of something new. But Jesus takes that analogy and says, imagine, Israel, if that stone was dropped on your head. Or imagine if you stumbled and hit your head on it. It would not be good for you. In fact, it can kill you. And what Christ is saying is, what is going to be the blessed cornerstone, the foundation of God's kingdom through the church, is also going to be an object of judgment for those who reject it. The same stone, the same person, the same Lord Jesus Christ is going to be loved by those who join his kingdom by faith. And he will judge those who reject his kingdom and this is where Israel is. There are Jewish people today, of course, who are part of the church and who are awaiting the kingdom of God to come when Jesus returns. There are some. But the vast majority of Jewish people are in rejection. They're in unbelief against God. But the Bible says there is a day in which Jesus is going to redeem the people of Israel again, too. That God has a future for the people of Israel and he will fulfill his promises to them. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not become conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles come in. Why did all of this happen? Why did God allow for the religious leaders to reject Jesus as king and then fall under his judgment? Well, part of the reason why was so that you and I would receive the opportunity to be part of the kingdom. And there was this clear move in the apostles from preaching and establishing the church in Israel to moving out to the Gentiles, to people like us, non-Jewish people, so that we too can be part of the kingdom of God. The Bible says that Israel as a nation is under the judgment of God. 
And that is so that we can be saved, so that Gentiles like us can be gathered in. But once God has gathered in all of the people that he has chosen to be part of his kingdom by faith, God is going to make a move to redeem people from Israel as well. And so here we have a sad story, a sad story of rejection. The people, reje- the people who should have received Jesus as king rejected him, and therefore he rejected them, and they fell under his judgment. That's what Jesus is prophesying here. And so verse 19 tells us that the people for whom the story was intended got the message. Verse 19 says, The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew they had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Why did they want to arrest him? So they could kill him. Exactly what he said they wanted to do to him, right? And yet they are so hardened in their unbelief that they couldn't see themselves in the prophecy in a way that would cause them to accept Christ. Jesus came offering a wonderful opportunity for the people of God to be gathered into his kingdom. But they missed the opportunity. What's the lesson for us? It's very simple. Don't miss your opportunity to be part of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is gathering a people for his future eternal kingdom all over the world, in every nation, every tribe, every tongue, the Bible says. God's message of the gospel will go forth, and God will gather people from all of them and welcome them into his kingdom when Jesus returns. Your life on this earth and your opportunity to hear this message and others that give the gospel message are your invitation. They're God saying, don't you want to be part of this kingdom? Here's your opportunity to receive Jesus as king and be included among those who will enter his kingdom when he returns. And so don't be like the religious leaders who were so keyed in on controlling the religious apparatus that they had that they rejected the king himself and fell under the judgment of God. Don't miss your opportunity to be part of Jesus' kingdom. That means receive his salvation by faith and submit to him as Lord. This is the essence of the gospel message. It's the same message that Jewish people received and by and large rejected. And it's the same message that Jesus charged us to take out into the world of the Gentiles. Turn from your sin, receive Jesus as Lord and submit to him as king. And because of what he did on the cross, you will receive the forgiveness of sins. Notice this passage of scripture, which ties in so many of these threads of the message that I've been giving to you. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, and then verses 16 and 17, the scripture says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's very simple in terms of its clarity. Turn your allegiance from anyone else, including yourself, to Jesus, and you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess faith and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And then Paul describes why this is true in verse 12, which, when he says, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There used to be, but no longer. Now God's opportunity is open to everyone. He says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
That's the gospel message. This is the invitation, the opportunity to be part of the kingdom of Christ. But then Paul says this, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news, just as Jesus prophesied, just as he said. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our message. Remember the prophets correspond to those servants who were sent and disregarded. Even Isaiah said, who's believed our message? Consequently, Paul says, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Why does our church exist? We exist for many reasons, but a key one is to call people to faith in Jesus Christ, to believe that he died for their sins, and to receive him as Lord and Savior so that they can be part of his future kingdom. And if you've never done that, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your opportunity. Just as Jesus came to his own with the opportunity to be, to be saved and reject him, now you have the opportunity either to receive Christ and be counted among his followers, to be part of his kingdom and wait for his coming, or you can reject him. And just as Jesus prophesied that he would be the judge of God's people Israel who rejected him, so he'll be your judge as well. And you'll stand before him condemned because you missed with unbelief, your opportunity to be part of the kingdom. So that's the first thing. If you've never trusted Christ, let me urge you to receive his kingdom, to receive him, his salvation, the king, by faith, and submit to him as Lord. For those of us who have come to Christ and know him as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says the rest of our time on this earth is to work for him. We're now kind of the new workers in the vineyard, in a sense. Jesus didn't extend the the parable that far, but it's not so far of a jump in logic. Now we are here to work in his vineyard. We are here to be productive spiritually so that when we enter the kingdom, there will be others, there will be plenty of others who have come to faith because of our work. And so that means for us who have received his kingdom by faith, we need to live our lives for his kingdom, not for the things that this world offers. This is the tension that every believer in Christ has. The things of this world offer so much. They promise so much to us. And we need many of them just to survive. But they become a temptation for us to spend all of our time and our energy and attention on so that we do very little, if anything, for the kingdom of God. And Jesus, in his teaching and preaching, as he's called people to faith in him, has also warned All who come to him by faith, don't live your life for the things of this world. Live it for the kingdom of God. Remember these words back in Luke chapter 12, verses 29 through 34, Jesus said, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it for the pagan world runs after all such things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. The promise of Jesus is when we live for his kingdom, when We try to organize our lives and spend our time and, yes, even our money in ways that bring people to faith in Christ and advance the kingdom of God. God takes care of the daily needs that that he knows we need. Jesus goes on in verse 32, says, Don't be afraid, little flock. Your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. If we've received the message of the gospel of the kingdom and Christ is our king, 
That's good. We have the promise that when his kingdom comes, we'll be included in it. But as we have seen in other parables, Jesus is saying, I've given you the opportunity to work for the kingdom, to provide for yourself in the future, to receive an eternal reward in eternity in the kingdom based on what you do with the life that you have now. And the question for us is, are we actually living for the kingdom of God? Are the priorities of our lives, the ways that we spend our time, the ways that we use or spend or invest our money, do they show that we are caring about the kingdom and advancing the kingdom of God, or do they really just show that we have a preoccupation with ourselves and with our needs? When you have the opportunity to give the gospel message, do you take it? When you have an opportunity to disciple someone who has come to Jesus Christ, do you jump into that opportunity seeing it as this is a reward that will last forever because it's work that's done for the kingdom of God? Are you investing your money by giving to missionaries who are taking this gospel message around the world? And to this church where we're trying to take the gospel message here, are you faithfully giving to God's work so that we have funds to do more in spreading the gospel message? Or are you consuming everything you have for yourself? What about this? Have you ever considered giving your life fully to the kingdom of God? That is saying, I'm going to give my life as a pastor or as a missionary to spread the gospel message. Not everyone has the gifts and abilities to serve the Lord full-time. Not everyone has the faith to do it. But there are needs all over the world for it. And the opportunity that Jesus describes here to trade what this world can offer you for eternal um, treasures that will never fade away, it's an opportunity that every one of us should consider. So maybe you should think about giving your life full-time to serve the Lord. These are ways in which we participate in the kingdom of God. Whatever this message means for you, whether it's becoming a Christian or looking at the way you've prioritized your life as a Christian, don't miss your opportunity to be part of God's kingdom and to invest in it with your life.